Welcome back, everybody. Uh, today I uh, I went up to the top of the mountain earlier today, and I delivered a whole bunch of articles to the Grow Network. Now, if you guys know the Grow Network, that's Marjorie Wildcraft, and I've been writing articles over there for quite a while now. So I I had gotten way behind because of the global pandemic and so I had to catch up on my my writing so I spent a long time getting those posts set up properly and doing all that kind of stuff earlier today but while I was doing that I decided you know I should probably check my email and see if any of my adoring fans have written me love letters and um, I, I didn't get any love letters like usual but some people had written me and uh, I want to I, I try to answer as many of the emails as I can get. So if, I, if you send me an email and I don't answer you right away, it's generally because I have really bad internet, not because I'm, I'm deliberately ignoring you. Um, if you write me an email with one question, I'll usually answer. If it's an email with 10 questions in it, I don't always answer. Uh, a lot of times I just don't have time to compose an email for that sort of thing. But um, I, got a, I got this email from... Uh, DB and there's a lot of questions in it and there's a lot of stuff that I think that um, probably quite a few people are thinking about right now and on, on garden design and survival gardening and getting started by taking a, a piece of lawn suddenly it seems more important to be able to feed yourself doesn't it so I figured okay well this is a really big complicated type of a, a email with a whole bunch of survival gardening questions in it I thought well normally I just take questions from the audience so what I decided to do was answer DB's questions bit by bit for you guys and then we you know if, if anybody wants to chime in or ask their own questions as we go along it's um it's basically going to be a, a overview on on survival gardening so we can wait a minute for everybody to show up I'm gonna say hi to everyone yeah Jason says whoa a ball cap yeah I'm wearing a ball cap uh, because this is one of those this is one of those prepper episodes. This is my this is my prepping hat. So hey, hey Lee, hey man, guy, dude, Cassidy, Stephen, Alan, Jason, Scott, Carolyn, <laughs> Scott sitting in the garden watching the stream. Hey, um, hey Marcus Aurelius. Hey simply CJK. Uh, CJK says um, I think a lot of people are having paradigm shifts. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that what comes next is massive deflation and serious economic collapse. Because the system was busted before uh, Corona Chan decided to come and pay us a visit. The system was already severely broken. It has been a broken system for a very, very long time. Um, whereas they say, you know, we have, we have, um, privatized profits and socialized losses so it, 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 so many things have been papered over for so long and the can can only get kicked for a certain period of time before um, it can't be kicked any further and I think we're this is probably just a tip a tip point and it's a really good idea to relocalize food production and the most relocalized you can get is growing food in your own backyard you know, support your local farmer, obviously, but you should also be growing food in your in your backyard if you can. So, <clears throat> I think that um, I think that it's just a lot of people are going to wake up who thought that you maybe were a little crazy about gardening, 
who thought that you were a little crazy about prepping, who thought that you were a little bit of the, the nutty neighbor, right? And I think that people that have been gardening as a hobby for a long time are now going to garden a little more seriously. This happened before, comes and goes. I mean, most of the United States was, was agricultural 100 years ago, and now a lot of the United States is urban, and, and a lot of people don't know how to grow food anymore. So uh, gardening is a growth market. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, the, gardening skills are very useful to have. And to, to be a gardener and to learn as much as possible, first of all, to be able to garden well on your own land, but then secondarily, to have the skills that you could turn around and show your neighbors and garden at your church. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be starting a big gardening project at our church. There's like two or three acres that are empty, and I'm going to spearhead getting it getting it gardened, and I'm going to do it in agroforestry. Because it's in it's in a little drier area than where I am. It's got pretty good soil, uh, but the whole area was just cut down to bare soil right before the dry season. So it looks like a it looks like a, a desert right now. So what I'm going to do is organize as many people as possible to you know, bring bring some cassava cuttings, bring some bananas, bring some plantains, bring some, you know, bring what you have, and we are going to make this into a church garden. And the church also has a school attached to it, so we'll, we'll get it from, you know, the edge of the parking lot over to the fence, and it'll also be an opportunity for the children in the school to see how agriculture works. But it's, beyond that, it's a chance for me to put into practice on a larger scale, on a community scale, a lot of the things that I've been doing for years. So I get to kind of be the, the community church gardener, which is sort of sort of cool and, and, and organizing things. But right now we're just waiting for the rain because uh, there's no irrigation there. So we have to be clever and we have to pr we have to create resilient systems that are going to go with low rainfall and continue to produce, which is not hard. It just takes a different type of planning. I mean, the easy way, the easy way is to use chemical fertilizers and to run irrigation on everything and just put, you know, put in, put in your big uh, sprinklers and, and that sort of thing. But I, that's, that's not what we want. Um, that is not, that is not really a resilient way to do it. That's the, that's the quick and easy way to do it. But, but long-term is not actually the quick and easy way to do it. What we want is the long and easy way to do it. So if you establish a system that can take care of itself for a longer period of time, um, and that will will require much less maintenance, uh, if we if we based it all on on annual gardening systems, that would not be the way to to have long-term food security. It's it's good, but every year you've got to do it, and every year you're subject to how the weather goes, and and what happens if the water gets shut off. Um, there have been, I mean, like yesterday our water was off most of the day because in the dry season they they have problems delivering water and so various neighborhoods get cut off sometimes for as long as a week so when you have that sort of thing going on um, it's really good to not plan your gardens around an easy water supply but to plan your gardens to grow with the climate and and what one of the things I want to do is put some great big long banks big long beds that are filled with Mexican sunflowers. So we have a huge amount of biomass that we can use to mulch in between the rows and mulch around the trees as the system grows. I want to get as many nitrogen fixing tree seeds as possible, nick them and soak them and plant them in the ground in banks, long row banks. We're talking, I've got, I've got like 
2,000 or maybe a thousand feet or something that I can work with. So great big long rows of it. I mean that kind of thing. It'd be awesome if I can get enough labor together and do that sort of thing. It'd be a really cool project. So, um, and and we can get, I mean, we can grow things like plantains and breadfruit and mangoes and all that kind of good stuff that that provide you know food and starches and you could treat. I mean bananas are one of those awesome staple crops, and we'll plant plant cassava in between, we'll plant pumpkins in between all that kind of thing and uh, it's going to be good it's going to be good it's going to take some it's going to take some work but <clears throat> let me see here thank you very much Scott for the super chat some rum money much appreciated <laughs> that's pretty funny uh, biblist biblist or biblist bibliist biblista biblist biblist I don't know if I could say that. Biblist. 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 Hey, David, enjoying reading your pre-published book. Biblist is a member, and members got a copy of Florida Survival Gardening before my publisher even did. Um, hey, David, enjoying reading your pre-published book with kitchen sink and clothes washer slash feeding plants. Are detergents a problem toxifying plants? Not generally in Florida because the sand allows all that stuff to, to wash through pretty quickly. It doesn't really stick around. Um, I ran the kitchen sink out to my bananas for years and the bananas grew like crazy So all the stuff going down the sink was going in there when you just use regular detergents the um, The dishwasher was also running out through there and it didn't cause a problem now sometimes it, it maybe if you had clay soil and you were running out a gray water system and you had a lot of you know borax a lot of boron in the, in the detergents and that was running out it could build up to toxic levels and start causing problems with plants, but generally, uh, I mean, in Florida, I've never seen any problems with it. So, I mean, my, my dad used to run um, the washing machine out into a side yard dry well, as he called it. It was a big pit that had um, a bunch of rock in the bottom of it, and there's a tree that grew right next to it and drew like grew like crazy. And not only that, it filled the entire thing full of roots over a period of time. So. Um, <clears throat> Scott's got horrible rain. I'll take some of your rain, Scott. I think we've had three-eighths of an inch in like the last month. It is so dry. I just was depressed this morning because it's like I cannot use the hose to wet the ground enough to to get stuff to be happy right now. It's miserable. So, swales and child labor is the answer. That is always the answer. No matter what the question is, it's swales and child labor. <laughs> Hello, Jason from Western North Carolina. Hey, Finca, nice to see you again, man. Uh, so, let me see. Hey, Essence of Anarchone. Got it. You got a broad fork. Good work, man. I love those things. Broad fork is your off-grid tilling tool. Uh, and I like the metal creature because it's unbreakable. So, hey, Ed. All right. And Shashakila. It's good to see you. Wow, Scott had two inches of rain. My goodness. All right, so let's get into this. Let's get into survival gardening. And this is the point where where that one viewer that likes to say fast forward until such and such in the video so fast forward until you reach where are we i don't even know where we are in the video oh never mind <laughs> actual content starts here okay so db writes i am a mild prepper and i haven't established nearly a large enough garden to sustain me through this pandemic but i have practiced in years past converting over a 30 foot by 30 foot garden from lawn at a property I rented just in case this ever happened. Good. Start gardening before a crisis. That's good. I like to hear that. 
Back then, I ran through the grass with a huge tiller to a depth of 10 inches or so and mixed in a massive quantity of horse manure. And I got decent results. Not with carrots, which I now learn hate that stuff, but everything else did well. I stumbled across your books and have been recommending grow or die to all my friends and family. They still don't see the potential dangers ahead, but have agreed to at least start something on my recommendation. That's right, you can't make people start prepping necessarily. Uh, people are really bad at predicting crises. Like I've been going on this last week, I've been rereading The Black Swan by Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And black swan events are the things that you don't, you don't predict. You don't expect a crisis. Most people are not expecting a crisis. Most people are expecting their life to keep going on the way it has always gone on to a certain extent. We're going to get through this. This isn't going to be a, the United States is always going to be around, you know. Um, the Soviet Union's always going to be around. Or the Soviet Union's got decades left in it. And then boom, overnight, what happened? Russia got withdrawn from the Soviet Union and the rest of it just left. It all fell apart, you know. Crazy. Gorbachev is out of a job. So, yeah, a lot of people won't see the dangers ahead. Your job is to warn them and to share what knowledge you have, not to be a pest about it, but to plant a few seeds, you know, and, and see if they're going to roll with it. But first of all, tend your own garden. So here's my question. What tips can you recommend for individuals looking to convert lawn to garden in a hurry? It is May 14th. I have all of the tools I need, like a mantis, a tiller, but maybe skip both of these. Newly purchased broad fork and a bunch of hoes, shovels, and forks, all based on your recommendations. I have various composts. I have seeds for everything I thought could be useful to plant. Oh, and I also put in a good word for you with the kind folks at easydigging.com. They said you were good people, so that made me feel even better about supporting them and you with your books. That's cool. I love easydigging.com. Um, uh, I made friends with the owner some years ago, and and he's a cool, he's a cool guy, cool guy, American businessman, you know. And they actually used to support my website for a while, and then I, I I quit charging them, and I just let them run the ad for free. It's been on my website forever now, probably like two years. <laughs> Since since I was like, eh, whatever. I, I recommend you all the time anyways. I don't care. You don't have to give me any money. Um, and so, okay. Broad fork, hose, shovels, forks. I, I don't have any, any intrinsic problem with using a tiller, you know, a mantis or a tiller or whatever. I just like to minimize complexity as much as possible. I think if you really want to convert a yard fast, a tiller is not a bad way to do it. You know, you don't want to till at the wrong time and beat the living daylights out of the ground um, when it's really mucky and you end up with a mess or when it's really dry. You know, when you've, get, when you've gotten a decent rain and the soil's in a pretty good tilth, you can go ahead and till it and turn the grass under. And then probably, you know, if you can afford to wait two weeks, till it again as the new weeds start to emerge and then, and then kill the remnants of the grass that way. I really like how, how fast a tiller can establish a garden. I don't own a tiller myself. Um, I use I use all hand tools for my gardening because um, I really I have I have a little bit of an allergy to complicated things and I don't like having to to buy gas and and I, I mean I just like I like the thought that I have garden tools that I could fix myself if anything happened to them I mean like the handle breaks and I put a new handle on it type of thing I mean my most of my shovels have new handles on them. The old handles dry rot or break or wet rot or whatever because we left them out. And we can go out to the woods 
and and cut some wild coffee stems and replace the handles. So the simplicity of having a broad fork, a hoe, a shovel, and knowing how to use those hand tools well, you can easily establish a large enough garden with these tools to feed yourself. And once you establish the garden and you loosen it, if you're not walking on the beds, you really don't have to do much digging again. And the quality of the digging you can do yourself or with a broad fork is higher quality than a tiller. A tiller is really good for very fast establishment, like one weekend, I'm gonna put a garden in. Um, but there is, you know, there is there are some benefits to hand tools, uh, even even with keeping yourself physically fit. And then he says, I have an access to an unlimited supply of biosolids, <laughs> biosolids, pre-pandemic, and a massive pile of composted sheep manure at my disposal, which I was told a lot of folks didn't want because it had too many worms, not maggots, earthworms, and potentially redworms, the best. So here's my dilemma. Okay. First of all, um, <clears throat> not a big fan of biosolids, but if that was the only thing you had to fertilize your garden with and you needed food, okay, maybe. But uh, the composted sheep manure, this is a problem. Since about uh, 2007, fields have been sprayed with a product from Dow AgroSciences called Satan's Own. Actually, it's called Grazon. And the reason it's called Grazon is because the, the cows and the goats can eat it. it, it can, they can spray a field with this stuff and it kills broadleaf weeds of all kinds of varieties. It doesn't kill grass. So they can, you can spray a field and then release the cows to eat it. But guess what? The molecule is so persistent, it can last for a couple of years or more, and it can pass through the digestive tract of an animal into the manure and then the manure will destroy your garden. I just had another person write me today and send me pictures of her garden and say, I bought purchased compost and all of my gardens are sick. And it, does this look like the stuff I was searching the web? Nobody's talking about this. You seem to be the only one. Like, well, people are starting to talk about it now because they're getting nailed, but I've been talking about it for um, almost eight years. So when you get another YouTuber that finally comes out with a really slick video about the dangers of manure, remember you heard it here first. Um, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book Compost Everything was because trying to get good garden amendments from outside of my homestead became more and more difficult because of how toxic big ag is. No straw bale gardens. Don't do it. No hay. No rotten loads of hay. Don't do it. No animal manure that may come from animals grazing on a field that's been sprayed or from animals that are eating purchased hay. Guess what? Most animals are eating purchased hay and there's no way to know if that purchased hay was in a field that was sprayed with this graze on Satan's own stuff from Dow AgroSciences. I hate these people. I hate these people because of what they've done to the, what they've done to the best organic amendments and how there's almost no warning for the gardeners. Oh, there's like, they're like, well, let's talk about responsible management. Guess what? You're not going to get responsible management. When you spray a field with this crap and then you give it to, you, you know, you, you get this perfect bundles of hay and you sell it at the local hardware store and people bring it home and they use it on their hay ride. They throw it in their compost pile and all their gardens die the next year. There's no warning that they can read. Guess what? This hay could kill your whole garden. They don't see that. Guess what? That load of rotted manure that the neighbor is giving away could kill your garden for an entire year. I lost $1,000 worth of plants 
Charles Dowden, the um, Dowding, the uh, the no-till guy, lost a bunch of stuff. Scott Head lost a bunch of stuff. A ton of people have lost a ton of stuff because of this garbage. And and so when he says I have a you know I have a massive pile of composted sheep manure, um, even if it's been composted, it's not necessarily safe. Now, if you do have a load of stuff and you don't know if it's safe, you can you can take a bunch of it and mix it with some soil. Like take a few buckets of it from different spaces and you know different places in the pile, mix it with some soil, plant beans in it or tomato transplants, water it real well, give them about four weeks to see how they develop. They may sprout just fine, but but the the evidence of grazon contamination starts showing up when the, the leaves start curling and twisting and looking sick. So when you see that sort of thing, then you know that it's been it's been damaged. And you do not want that in your garden. But still, you know, one load of it might have some stuff and one load may not. And one section of it might have had some of that stuff sprayed and one part may not. So when you're getting compost, you're purchasing compost, right? You're purchasing mushroom compost. You're purchasing, um, you know, local municipal compost or whatever. Guess what? A lot of this stuff is now contaminated because somebody threw a load of rotten hay or straw or they threw some manure in it or they got some stuff from a local dairy farm. That's what happened with this woman. She got some compost that she had bought that had some some, you know, manure from a local dairy in it and they didn't warn her that it could kill her whole garden. How many thousands of people bought that stuff for their gardens this year? I'm going to start cussing. I don't want to start cussing. So annoying. So anyhow, I would not use the sheep manure. <clears throat> Here's my dilemma. I have a small corner lot in the suburbs covered in Kentucky bluegrass that I worked hard to get last year. It all has to come up for garden space. Grass to food. My prime area is on the north side of my home, although I would like to plant on the southern portion and we'll drop some Jerusalem artichokes onto the, into the flower beds there. Nice, I like that. I would prefer my main food hidden, sort of, behind my fence. I am planning to run multiple five-foot-wide strips in the north-south direction. Okay, good. I could fit 10 to 12-foot-long strips before I get into a two-to-one slope that I was dumping biosolids on last fall to build up. I know you do not like biosolids, and I would tend to agree, for food use, and I would say avoid them mostly. That being said, I'm a civil engineer for one, if not the largest wastewater organization in the world. I work at the world's third largest plant, so if you ever have questions about biosolids, I can help you get the info. That's good to know. Thank you. Um, I researched it and had discussion with our soil scientists and other engineers, and in a jam, it's worth their consideration. It's not that they're terrible, and I prefer them over store-bought manure, but long-term, I still have concerns, like heavy metals. But the low levels are lower than most stuff available from other sources. Honestly, I think you get more garbage from store-bought manure. Yeah, quite possibly, in my opinion. That being said, compost everything. That's the way to go. Okay, so five-foot-wide strips, north-south direction, no problem. Now, see, there's the, the benefit to running a five-foot-wide strip is that you get more growing area to path ratio. That's what John Jeevens likes with his biointensive gardening, five foot wide. He also believes that it creates a, a, a slightly more favorable microclimate for the plants growing inside when the ground is shaded by the plants growing together. I like four foot wide beds because I find them a little bit more accessible, but uh, I've talked to people that like you know 30 inch wide beds, three foot wide beds, because they're really easy to access. You know from both sides and i understand i mean even single row gardens are actually really nice to work with single row space single row space they're actually really nice to walk around in uh and, and to harvest from because it's so easy to access everything i understand that 
but you're the more limited your space is you know the more you want to to limit path space and give yourself decent sized beds so five foot wide if you want to do that that's cool um, the two to one slope that you were dumping biosolids on I would if it's if you got a slope like that that's where you plant trees so that's where I would plant food forest trees and uh, long-term perennials that sort of thing you know to hold the ground together I would I would do that <clears throat> so um, just got nine rabbits and I have been letting them chew the lawn down in my proposed bed areas and letting their waste sit while I start to broad fork the lawn. Good work. Good idea. Anytime you can incorporate grazing animals into your garden plans, that's a, that's a benefit. Uh, having animals on the land stimulates the plant growth immensely. Um, you, can, you can really do some good work by uh, you know mob grazing animals. People have this mistaken idea that animals are going to lead to deforestation and runoff and damage to the environment and if managed well it's precisely the opposite so that's that's good um, I also have a nice drum of tea brewing out back with some rabbit droppings and some other fun stuff should be perfect by the time I need it good deal also been urinating on the lawn a lot thanks for that tip too figure I can use all the nitrogen I can get I garden at night now also with a headlamp because nobody here is being safe, in my opinion, during the daylight hours. So back to my question. What tips or recommendations can you give us suburb folks to quickly turn around our lawns into gardens? Specifically, how would you address the existing grass? My rabbits ate most of it down and did a good job fertilizing for me in exchange, but I still have areas of grass to address, and I'm not sure what would be best between the beds. Do I leave the grass between beds? <clears throat> okay. Um, with a lot of grasses... See, I, I, I love grass and I hate grass at the same time. Grass is a fantastic source of materials for uh, the compost pile. It's a fantastic source of materials for ongoing mulch. It's very good for stopping erosion and keeping water from running through areas. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that you can, you can use grass for. And of course, it's very good to feed animals. There's a lot of benefits to grass, but grass in between garden beds... Um, can be a problem because the grass likes to invade. If you have a nice loose area with high fertility, the grass spreads out over it and grabs it. So I would not keep the I would not keep the grass in the garden areas. I would I would till it over once, and then till it again uh, a week or two later. Just run, boom, run through it. And then if you want to like nicely fork and stuff later, you could do that. But but the way I would do it if I had a tiller was till all the grass under, give it two weeks, till it all again. That second time that you till it, it should destroy the grass that's regrowing. And then what I would do is take my take one of my hoes, um, one of my like like a grape hoe or digging hoe, or if I didn't have that, I would use a hard tined landscape rake. And if I didn't have that, I would use a shovel and I would establish my he's going to use five foot wide beds. So I would take my five foot wide beds and then make either 18 inch to 24 inch pathways in between. And make and and dig down in the pathways a little bit and mound the soil up in the beds. So you have you have slightly mounded soil for the runoff in the beds. And then just um, 
use a use a hoe to keep the pathways clear in between because it's really it's just it's very difficult to keep grass under control when it gets into the garden so that would be my recommendation for converting the grass quickly into gardens now another another method in a small space is to do like i do in the the lasagna gardening demonstration um patricia lanza's book uh, lasagna gardening is fantastic ruth stout's book is very good though i don't recommend using straw anymore um Paul Gauchy's back to Eden, awesome. But but one of the one of the ways you can you can make a real high fertility space to plant into is to gather all of the good stuff that you can find, all of the all the biomass, the leaves and and grass clippings and seaweed or whatever you can find, uh, coffee grounds, paper plates, doesn't matter. So you you take you take cardboard and lay it directly directly over an area of grass and just start stacking stuff on top of it. But you wet the grass really well first, you put some cardboard down, you wet the cardboard, and then you start stacking stuff up until you get like at least a foot of material on top of it. And then you plant, uh, you put little pockets of compost or soil into it and plant plants right into that mulch and, and poke a little hole in the cardboard underneath each one so they can root their way down through. So you can get a really good high fertility space and crush the grass out at the same time. Uh, I've had very good luck with improving soil that way, particularly in uh, Tennessee. So if you are, you know, if you're, you're growing Kentucky bluegrass, I'm going to guess that you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with uh, probably similar soil that I used to have in Tennessee. So I would, I would uh, consider that for small spaces. For the larger space, I mean, you just want to get established really quickly. It's much faster to till the whole area. Um, <clears throat> I'm also still at a loss for what method to grow in. I think I would like to avoid rows based on your books. And being an engineer, the idea of triangular templates for spacing appeals to me. Okay, it depends on which book you're reading and which part of it. Because I like naturally flowing, flowing systems in food forests. But for, for maximum production and access, there's nothing wrong with, with just using, you know, just, just go in rows. It, it, it works with the way human beings think. We like to lay things out in rows. You don't see squares in nature, but that doesn't mean that, that n you know, nature is an improvement on our intellect. It just may be that, you know, we look around in nature and nature was, was planted in a big complicated system that's random. When we organize it into blocks, we may be able to get easier or better production off of it. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can, you can borrow what you need from nature but when it comes to garden design you're gonna have to do what works well with your own mind so um, I like I said my favorite is to have four foot wide beds two foot wide paths but I am thinking of lowering my paths down to 18 inches uh, in some areas just to see if that gives me enough access I, I have I have had pathways as narrow as one foot and that was terrible it's very awkward and and when you have larger plants it doesn't work very well it's nice to have a little bit more space between the beds but if you're dealing with a small suburban backyard you want to minimize the space without making the beds so so wide that they're really hard to access like six foot wide beds would be an absolute pain in the neck to access from both you know you're like leaning way over on both sides because once you make a nice loose space you don't want to step in it it really decreases your um your production if you step in those beds. Soil compaction is your not your friend. Um, 
So when I'm talking about you know natural rows and that sort of thing, uh, that's that's mostly for my food forest systems. And you, if you're if you're doing edible landscaping, if you're hiding edible crops into your existing landscaping, just plant a bank of say uh, canna lilies, knowing that you can eat the roots of canna lilies if you have to. Plant some arrowroot, you know, just mix them in. Um, plant in, like you're saying, plant Jerusalem artichokes into your flower bed great you know hide that hide those calories in plain sight it's very obvious when you have a row garden that you're growing food uh, it's not so obvious if you have flowing beds in a landscape pattern so I have no no problems with rows as a matter of fact I'm trying some rows in my food forest right now alley cropping style uh, and the idea of triangular templates for spacing appeals to me yeah that's I often plant in staggered rows so it's like, you know, this one here, 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 this one here. So if I, if I, if I, if it's 18 inches apart, I use from the, the tip of my middle finger to my elbow. And that is my, I often use my own body to measure how far things are apart in the garden. I also made some measuring sticks, which, um, which I, I use when I, I have like a four foot space. So I have a four foot wide stick that's painted white and it says 48 inches on it and it's got a green end on either side of it and one of my sons and I made it together so when we're putting in a new garden bed all I have to do is lay that four foot wide stick on the ground hammer a piece of rebar at either end of it and and then run strings down and put it at the other end hammer a piece of rebar at either end of it and then run the strings right across and there's exactly the, the bed that I'm going to dig or mulch or or whatever else so it gives me a really good idea um, so if, if, if you're an engineer and you like the idea of triangular templates and spacing and he doesn't mind, it says, I don't mind the math and precision. That being said, I'm super nervous straying from the row we have all had ingrained in our minds for years, especially given the potential consequences of failure right now. Use the rows. Just go with the rows. No problem. I, I, I like the four foot wide, but if you want to do five foot wide, awesome. Five foot wide with 18 inch pads would probably be really good for a backyard space. Uh, but to leave the pads, you know, the pads need to be wide enough so you can take a wheelbarrow through and, and add more biosolids or whatever you can add to the beds to feed them. Uh, if biosolids were all I had, that's what I would use. I just don't want to. I would, I would rather use human over the biosolids, but I'm, you know, you're the, you're the engineer, not me. Um, I'm just a gardener, man. So... Use the triangular templates. Use your math and precision. Uh, I, I, I have tested so many different varieties of gardening. I can adjust to whatever yard or space that I'm in. Uh, but there are me methods that I am more comfortable with. I, uh, when I established my survival garden this year, knowing that the pandemic uh, was on its way, I had already started on my gardens, and I started them without enough material to do deep mulching, without much in the way of compost. And, and it was a big area with a lot of tenacious, viney, multiple rooting, bindweed weeds and, and trees that needed to be sawed down and all kinds of stuff. So my son did a big amount of the work himself and, and chopped and burned. And when we burned, we saved all the ashes so I could then turn around and reapply ashes to all the rows 
and then we planted like cucumbers and pumpkins and things in areas where we burned. I mean, the pumpkin, the pumpkin that I grew by one of the burn piles, gave me 48 pounds of pumpkins off of one, one pumpkin vine. Four pumpkins totaling 48 pounds total. And so, the way I did it was I dug, I dug those beds well. I got them loose in the ground, and then from, from those uh, four foot wide beds and two foot wide pads, I just watered the ground with city water, started planting, started making big piles of compost, but I didn't have enough. Now I'm starting bit by bit to carry in mulch and put them around because it's been really dry. So I water really well, put some mulch, and I was able to order a whole bunch of manure from a friend of mine, which I've already burned through half of, uh, to put on top of the beds and get them started. So over time, I can I can afford to experiment with deep mulching and put more perennials in and stuff like that. But when it's gardening, when it counts, like Steve Solomon's book or Grow or Die, like my book, uh, it's it's go with the established method that you're comfortable with and start rolling right away. And I knew that I would get lots of food, so I've gotten lots and lots of food. We've had lots and lots of vegetables, and if I had known the pandemic was going to come, I would have planted high calorie crops first rather than doing an experiment with tomatoes. But the experiment with tomatoes has been a, a, a very useful thing. It's been very nice to have tomatoes when we were eating lots and lots of beans and rice and, and yams that we were digging out of the yard. And these yams were wild yams or some yams left over from the beds I planted last year. Um, but having the tomatoes was really pleasant. So I, you know, I think there are crops that are good for morale, but I would not have done you know, 12 beds of tomatoes. That was kind of ridiculous. But what I did discover from the tomato project was that the carbon tomato is the hands down winner of the experiment, followed by Heat Master and then Barry's Crazy Cherry, with er almost everything else doing poorly in the heat. Lucid Gem was a poor producer, made a couple of very beautiful tomatoes, but a poor producer. Uh, the big red cherry tomatoes have just made lousy tomatoes and they don't like the heat. Um, you know, so you learn these things as you go along, but now is not the time to do those experiments. Now is the time to plant calories. So speaking of that, when you do these beds, remember calories first, then nutrition. Calories first. So potatoes, sweet potatoes, um, winter squash. You know, storable calories, those things are really important. That's what you want to concentrate on. And uh, in your area, probably um, there's some good varieties of, there's certainly good varieties of corn. I would plant plenty of corn, but green corn, not sweet corn. After you plant those things, then plant like your greens because you'll get really stinking hungry trying to eat greens. I just got to, I mean, we had a ton of pak choy. I got tired of it. I started cutting it out and planting sweet potatoes. <laughs> um... So I'm super nervous straying from the row we've all ingrained in our mind for years, especially given the potential consequences of failure right now. Our ancestors grew in rows too, it's okay. It is ingrained, but it's ingrained for good reason. It's an easy way to manage crops and to maximize space. And again, you should know I'm forever grateful for your book, your videos, your information, and I thank you. I don't feel unprepared, but I lack some confidence when it comes to gardening for what could be actual survival. Okay, so, um, and there's a couple more things in there, but... <clears throat> Yeah, the, you know, I, I want to thank 
DB for asking all these questions. Like I said, I normally don't have time in, in emails. If somebody sends me 10 questions, this is a difficult one, but I know that a lot of people are nervous right now and a lot of people are probably having some of the same thoughts about how do I survival garden? How do I take a lawn? What should I do? Should I do it like this or this or this or this? This is not the time for philosophy. Uh, this is the time for for getting stuff in the ground and and growing food with whatever you have and and using tried and true methods as best as possible I love to experiment and I'm always experimenting to make sure that I'm getting the best production or I'm trying this or I'm trying that or whatever that's that's all valuable to do and I, I always think you should have a little bit of experimentation going but use the try to true methods that you are familiar with. If you're already good at square foot gardening, keep square foot gardening. Expand your square foot gardens. If you're already good at regular row gardening, maybe use a tiller and 10, 10, 10. Okay, go ahead, keep doing it. If you're getting good food that way, don't stop and change because you saw something on no-till. Do your regular gardens so you can make sure that you have food for this year. But do a no-till garden nearby. Don't, don't like go, I'm going to have a paradigm shift right now and, and shift everything over to a new system that you're not familiar with and you may not be comfortable with. Don't start doing anarchy gardening where you're throwing the seeds all over and doing a big mandala or whatever the nonsense stuff is. You know, don't do that stuff right now. Garden with the methods that you already have, that you already know, that have already worked for you. Avoid the pitfalls, like avoid the poisoned manure, right? Don't don't go getting anything that's going to end up killing your garden this year. You kill your garden this year, you're, you're losing a year. 2020 is not a year you want to kill your gardens. So, let me... Let me go in and start looking at the, the questions here. I see we've got a lot of people have been commenting, but I wanted to make sure I answered all that before I go. Uh, Titina says, why don't you recommend straw? I do not recommend straw because a lot of the grain crops are killed down with herbicides in order to harvest. So straw contains herbicides in it, and it may contain some very long-term herbicides that can cause uh, ill effects in your garden later. I don't use stray, straw. I don't recommend straw bale gardening. And Joel Karsten is a jerk, so th there you go. Shashka <laughs> uh, Sila says, I have two 4x4 raised beds to plant purple hole peas. Any advice on spacing seeds slash plants? Yeah, I would give them about um, give them about 12 inches in between each one. It's I know that's, that's not a lot of peas in that space, <clears throat> but... Um, I, I like a little a little wider spacing. You probably go as little as eight inches, but I wouldn't go any closer than that. You'll find that plants that have a little more space and they're not fighting each other will will produce better. Um, how far apart do you do you suggest I plant my Beauregard uh, sweet potato slips? Twenty. You also have twenty gallon containers slips per. 20 gallon containers that's not much two slips per and I would plant your other sweet potatoes at 16 inches apart you can plant them 12 apart 12 inches apart in rows that are like three feet apart but I I don't recommend going that close I like 16 inches about 16 about 16 inches to like if you just plant them that far apart from your elbow to your middle finger you'll be fine too a cubit is fine. It's 18 inches. I like that. And 18 inches apart and then give them about two feet between rows. You can always, 
probably sneak one in between every little block here and there, but if you plant them too close, they, they fight too much. Remember, they need to gather the solar energy in order to make those roots. So the closer you join them together and the more they're all on top of each other, you're going to get worse root yields. You'll get smaller clumps of roots. You get plenty of vines, but smaller clumps of roots, and you don't want that. A little wider. Let me see. <clears throat> Cassidy says, I put my chickens in my garden area every winter to eat all the leftover plant materials and fertilize and till the soil. Very good idea. <laughs> A4000T says, my neighbor is a good example of animal mismanagement. 25 sheep on 5 acres, they stripped it to dirt, and now the animals climb the wire fence and eat the entire side off my arbor vitae. You know, 25 sheep on 5 acres, if that area was divided into smaller chunks and the animals were rotated through the chunks, they actually do much better managing the space. And, and it gives a recovery time to the plants in between. But there are, there are decent ways to do it. 25 sheep may be a little overstocked, though. A little overstocked. Jerry says, uh, followed your advice on mulching my fruit trees with rotting red oak. How do you feel about mulching with hickory? We had a windfall a couple months ago, and the heart is rotten out. Oh, I think I think hickory's great. Hickory rots down nicely. Uh, hickory, though, I would save some of it. I would save some of that stuff for smoking, man. If you if you take you get your hot peppers and some green tomatoes out of the garden, and you put them in a little basket and you smoke them, even if you take a big pot outside, one that you can put over put over a fire, or you put a you know put a pot on a burner outside, put some soaked wet hickory chips in the bottom and you hang a colander or a little basket or something in the top of it and then cover it and just let those chips smoke under there you fill that thing full of like cayennes uh jalapenos and some green tomatoes and you smoke them all together so they soak it up and they cook for like an hour in the smoke then you take them and you put them with some vinegar and a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt and maybe a garlic clove or two, and you blend them up with a blender. Holy moly, you can make the best smoked sauce, the best smoked hot sauce you've ever had. Finka says, I have a gala apple that's barely breaking dormancy. Weird or what? Maybe weird. They, they don't know what to do when they don't get proper chill hours. So if you're in an area that they don't normally grow, the chill hours, chill hours vary from year to year, and sometimes they don't want to break dormancy. We have a lot of wind right now. I hope you guys can hear me okay. It's crazy. I'm on a ridge top. I wouldn't use biosolids either. I would avoid them completely. Gomez Adams says, is there such a thing as organic manure? Yeah, if you could get manure that you from a neighbor's animals and they never spray anything on their fields and they never buy any hay, that's the way you know that it's organic. Or if it's uh, your own manure or manure from animals that you raise and you have enough grazing land for them that you're not buying in. Now, if you buy in peanut hay or alfalfa, that is okay because that stuff is not sprayed with the long-term persistent herbicides. It's the it's the herbicides that are made for grass production that are the real enemy here. The Grazon stuff. Nasty. Craig says, is black cow safe? No, it's not safe anymore. Uh, multiple people have written me and said black cow is no longer safe because the manure supply is contaminated. Unfortunately, I mean, we're, we're literally talking about 
putting manure on your garden and with two to three weeks later having your, your plants start to twist and curl and turn yellow. Okay, let's see. There's questions here. <laughs> Those sheep must be tasty. <laughs> CC says, what makes a plant's leaves point up? I have plants put back in the garden and seedlings in front yard and their leaves are all standing straight up. I'm not sure. I mean, it could be could be plant stress, but I don't I don't know why they would be doing that. Generally, they they start up and then they they fall down to catch the light. Okay, I'm glad sound is fine. Thank you, Alan. Seems like it's gonna is it gonna rain? Can you check the horizon? Sorry, it's it's feeling like it may start raining on me and in that case we're gonna have to end this this stream and run I'm on a mountain right now what's your favorite candy well that's a funny question what is my favorite candy uh, I am I am rather fond of Reese's peanut butter cups I don't eat much candy I'm actually much more um, addicted to to salty things I really like I like salty, savory stuff a lot. Like, I like to take bacon and dip it in sour cream. That's like an awesome snack. Just dip bacon strips in sour cream and eat them like that. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, but candy. I really like the really good, the good, good black licorice too. Very, I'm a fan of that. And I like chocolate that is like 80% or more. You know, it's pretty good. <clears throat> Let me see. Gomez Adams says, I live near Seattle and I'm not used to being in a small place. I'm used to having a huge yard. It can be very difficult. I had, I had a really difficult couple of years renting. And while I was renting, still trying to maintain a YouTube video. So many people stuck with me, but I'm like, what am I going to show? You know? What a pain. Um, <laughs> Tina. Good work. T okay, Tina is my kind of gardener. Tina sends a $20 super chat and says, Been lurking around your sites for years. Today I composted a bird my cat killed. So thanks for that. Good work. Compost everything. Compost everything. Uh, I mean, that's, that's potential soil fertility. Remember, if you bury an animal beneath the ground, you plant on top of it. You can it can give the the plant so much nutrition through that year and into the next year. It's surprising. I once killed a rat in a rat trap, buried the rat, planted a pumpkin on top of it, and the pumpkin vine grew like crazy. Needed no more fertilizer. It had all it needed from one rat. So instead of like, what are you gonna do, throw the rat away? I don't want to throw the rat away. I want to bury it in the ground where it's not gonna spread disease or anything else. Let the soil organisms deal with it. Let those pumpkin roots grow it. Turn a rat into a pumpkin. So good work. And thank you very much for the super chat. If anybody, if you guys appreciate what I'm doing and you want to send super chats, you can you can send super chats. There's a there's like that little dollar sign thing that says show your support for David the Good. So if you find anything useful and you want to if you want to chip in a couple of bucks for um, 
bandwidth on the mountain. I do it via my um, my cell phone. But listen, if you if you are if you're somebody that uh, is is struggling right now, or you're out of your work or anything, please don't send me a super chat. Please keep it for yourself. Honestly, uh, I'm doing fine, and I have lots of food, and I live in the tropics, so don't. Uh, I really, I really do not want you. I would rather have you buy seats. So there you go. That's it. That's how the super chat things work. For those of you that are wondering what what it what it is. Um, there it is. Plants pray before the rain. That's quite possibly it. Bacon, the candy bar of meat. Chashka Kila says, I have bags of oak and hickory pieces for barbecue. Bought at a big box store. Can you use them for mulch instead? Yes, but it's an expensive mulch. Better to use for smoking, probably. The Prabble says, can banana trees thrive in containers? How big would they need to be? The pots. I would not grow a banana tree. Okay, there's varieties of banana trees, right? There are dwarf banana varieties like dwarf Cavendish. Um, and then there's various ornamental varieties that are small. Um, there's, a, there's one that's called Trinidad Fig. The Trinidad Fig bears big bunches of bananas, but it's a short, squat tree. I mean, like six foot tall and bearing huge bunches of bananas. So that particular banana, I would not go smaller than probably a 20 gallon pot, 20, 25 gallon pot and stick to the short varieties because the tall ones are going to get so big they knock your pot over. If you are growing a banana variety and you look it up and it says it grows to 16 feet, I probably would not do that one in a pot that was less than maybe 50 gallons. Uh, I mean... Yeah, it, it, it gets difficult to maintain them, and, and bananas like to lean, and they also like to make babies on the sides, and when you get a 40 or 50 pound stalk of bananas hanging off of one side, it'll pull the whole pot over, so I, was, I, would, I would grow small varieties like dwarf Cavendish. You could get them to fruit in a pot. One thing you can do, too, if you have them growing in a pot, you can have like a kiddie pool or something. And you can water them from below so the, the pot doesn't become too uh, hydrophobic. So when you have potting soil, sometimes what happens, it often happens in, in pots, if you don't water regularly enough, uh, and sometimes even if you do water pretty often, it'll start to dry out in areas of the pot. So you get this really dry areas. So you might think that you're getting enough water in it, but it's running around the edges of the pot and out through the bottom holes, but it's not actually soaking the center of the pot. So if you have a little kiddie pool, like one of those $7 pools, you can take it, put a few pots in that, put gravel in it to keep the mosquito larva out, but then just pour water into the bottom of it. So what happens is, is the bottom of the pots are sitting in a couple of inches of water. So the water wicks up through and the roots can go down into it and get it. And that's a really cool, easy way to kind of make a little water garden with some pots. If you're, if you've just got a patio or something like that, it's not really a water garden, but what it is, is it becomes a self watering container system. This is really cool. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Justin sends a, a, a $10 super chat for David the Great. Oh, I'm not that great. <laughs> I'm, I'm David the so-so. Some days, the dry season's making me feel pretty lousy about my gardening skills. It's been so dry. I just get up this morning. My wife's like, what is it? And I'm just standing out in the garden, just spraying the hose over these beds. I'm like, I can't spray enough water on this to get it wet enough to be happy. I'm like, it's too dry. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Bacon is the candy bar of meat. Thank you, Jerry. 
Very true. CC says, I have lettuce in containers and a whole tray of berry seedlings all pointing up, and then everything in my garden in the backyard is doing this too. I see it before a storm, maybe humidity. Yeah, plants will do that. I have seen that. Um, you know, they, they, they used to say in the south, you know, when the trees turn white, it's going to rain. And generally, it was like the, the leaves would, would move sideways, and you see the bottoms of them. Dimodoma says, what would you do to correct fruit worm infestation if animals are not an option? I would remove all infected fruit and anaerobic compost them or bury them or burn them to make sure that uh, they, the, the, the problem, they, they don't reach maturity and come back and get your trees. Can I put dead animals like squirrels and birds in my raised bed? Yes, just bury them, bury them underneath, like, like plunk a hole in the middle there and, and bury them. No problem. Um, it's best to bury them deep enough so that animals are not going to find them and dig them out again. Because if you plant them and then you plant some transplants on top and a dog comes and digs it up, that's not good either. <clears throat> but they, they will feed the beds. I've done it. Finka says, I saw a video the other day of how farmers compost whole cows. I was astonished. Yeah, I, I read an article once, which I read on one of my live streams, where after one of the big hurricanes... The, some of these farmers had had entire like chicken barns wiped out and the department of the USDA was like okay all you gotta do is get a bunch of we'll just cover a lot of it with sawdust and and water it really well and it will all rot down into compost you can spread on your fields so they composted all the chickens but meanwhile you get these uh, these lists of, of you know composting rules that say, oh, don't throw meat in it, don't throw bones in it, don't throw bread in it, don't throw paper in it. It's like, look it, I'm not going to sit there and sort all my trash. Just just let me throw all the organic stuff in one place, or, or it's like, I might as well throw it to the landfill. I mean, people just give up because there's too many rules. They're dumb rules. Bury it in the ground or bury it in the middle of a pile and let it rot down because there's a huge amount of fertility in an animal, in meat. Protein is primarily composed of nitrogen. There is phosphorus, calcium, all kinds of micronutrients inside of meat. So if you're going to throw the meat away and then compost your wilted lettuces, I'm telling you that meat is worth like 100 lettuces in its fertilizing potential. So don't waste it. It's dumb. Dig a hole in the ground and plant something over the top of it. I mean, you dig a pit in the ground, do what I call melon pits. In, in compost everything, I talk about melon pits. Dig a hole in the ground, you've got a gallon of rotten milk. Oh, shoot, the kids left it out on the counter, you know. Dump the whole thing in the bottom. And then plant on top of it. Easy. The kid's hamster dies. Throw it in there with the milk. It's, it's not hard. It's really not hard, and it's a total waste not to do it. I mean, to not compost meat, and then to go to the store and buy bone meal and blood meal, or buy phosphate, or, you know, buy nitrogen, come on. Just compost the meat. Ignore the stupid rules. I'll tell you, the rules are written by nitpicky people. They're people that like to make systems. They have like to have lots of systems. Rather than going back, what happens in nature? How is the system designed? 
The system is designed as a recycling machine. Basically, you throw a dead animal on the ground, that area becomes more fertile. The maggots come in and they chew it up and they turn it around, and they leave lots of manure, they break it down into the ground. The buzzards come, they eat some of it, they spread it around. It gets The fertility of it gets spread all over the place. So what you want to do is find a way to concentrate it on your own land and recycle it without the animals coming and taking it away. You want it to rot down a little slower, put it in the ground, and if you want it to, to fast compost, buried in the middle of a big pile, it will disappear. And, and you're losing your highest fertility. Think, think how the food chain works. You got really simple things at the bottom. You've got plants, right? Plants provide a lot of carbon and they pull up nutrients and they do all these cool things. They pull up nutrients from a large space, but you got one deer. How many plants does one deer eat? It eats a ton of plants. It, eat, it eats plants all day long to maintain all of that muscle mass that it has and all of its high level of biological activity. So what it's doing is grazing over a large area and concentrating a large amount of nutrients inside of its body to maintain its functions. So when you kill a deer and you put some venison steaks in your freezer, when you've got the guts and the skin and the bones or whatever else, you bury those. You're getting, you're getting concentrated fertility from a huge area of forest and the micronutrients and the nitrogen and all that stuff and you're putting it right into your your homestead that's like gathering fertility from acres and concentrating it into a super high quality food so use it just use it hamster milk I compost the meat, feed the wilted lettuce to the worms. Yeah, if the worms like it, feed it to them. Shashkis <laughs> um, Kila says, I have a Lisbon lemon in... I don't know what a Lisbon lemon is. In a seven-gallon container... Almost five years old and even smaller has never bloomed. Everyone keeps saying lots of nitrogen, but still no bloom. Advice, lots of nitrogen is probably not it. It's probably uh, phosphorus and potassium, not nitrogen. Too much nitrogen will inhibit blooming. But a seven-gallon container is its pretty small. It's marginal for a lemon. I, I would probably pot that sucker up. Um... I would pot that sucker up, and I and, and depending on how it looks, I mean, if it's really lush and green, it's probably getting too much nitrogen. It may need a little stress too. Uh, you might let it let it dry out a little bit, so it looks a little sad, and then water it again and see if you can make, force it into. You know, it's like like you reach a certain age and you start panicking because you haven't had kids yet. Plants are like that too. They they think that they're going to die, and they decide to have kids. They're like, I have to have a baby. I need to. Make you know, you get a little bit of stress, sometimes we'll do it. <clears throat> the Country Ninja says, I'm about to plant a bunch of cow peas in Central Florida. Should I pre-soak the seeds, or is that not that big of a deal? It's not that big of a deal if the ground is wet enough. If the ground is not particularly wet, or you're not going to be irrigating or watering, um, soak the seeds, but don't soak them any longer than, like, like overnight. Like, put them in in the evening and plant them the next morning. If you wait longer than that... Um, and often in Florida weather, the seeds start to rot in the water and they'll start fermenting. I've seen them fermenting in just a, you know, like, like a day, it's starting to bubble around the seeds. You don't want that. So, I mean, better would probably be to soak them for like two hours and then put them out. But it's not necessary. If you're going to water well, it's not necessary. <clears throat> Let me see here. 
<laughs> Thank you for the super chat. Carolyn sends a super chat. It says, great information. I appreciate it. Real World Redneck says, with the price of hamburger right now, I'm so great, thankful for deer meat in the freezer. Yeah, amen for that. It's good. It's a good deal. Um... Ed says, planted 24 Moringa seeds two days ago, growing some homemade compost. Good work. Those Moringas, man, those Moringas, they, they're very good nutrient accumulators, and they also are moderately high. Um, they're not as high in protein as, as meat is, but they're high protein for a plant. So I grow them to chop and drop, which just freaks people out. They look at the Moringa, they're like, how dare you? That's like the most useful tree ever. What a waste. I'm like, it's not a waste. I grew them deliberately to chop and drop them. Plants love eating Moringa. It seems to be a, a growth stimulant for them so <laughs> Rick <laughs> Rick asked me this question twice and forgot he'd asked me before he asks again sends a five dollar super chat and says will my olive tree fruit in South Florida <laughs> joke <laughs> okay that's funny well my friend I'm like what are you kidding <laughs> and then I said <saw> joke <laughs> silly biz says another question can I compost cooked meat yes absolutely any food that you can eat you can compost. I will not eat the bugs. I will not live in a pod. <clears throat> oh, man. Shashka Kila, have a good night. Simmons Buddy says, any tips on starting Moringa seeds? Yes. Uh, if it's cold or cool, you need to make sure that it's getting some, some heat, right? So when I started... Moringa seeds in North Florida, I found that if I planted them in February when it was still cool outside, we're talking like 60s, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they didn't want to germinate and they would rot in the pots. So I put uh, a heat mat underneath pots. I mean, I had some small pots. I put them in small pots, planted one in each pot, and I put them on a heat mat, and that would get them to germinate in a couple of weeks. They didn't have the heat mat. They would just rot in the pots. But if it's already warm enough, like in the 80s, they like it in the 80s at least, 80s is good. Uh, plant them in soil, water them well once. Let the soil get a little bit drier, water them again. Don't keep them wet, man. They're soggy, they damp off, they just die, they rot. They don't like to be soggy, especially when they're getting established. Later on when they have a trunk, when they start to get a woody trunk, if you still have them in a pot, you can water them more if you, you want to, or if it's pouring rain on them or it's in the ground, no problem. But moringas, when they still have the little green stems, they're very subject to rotting off. Brett has 30 moringas. Oh, we're going to up it, man. 30 moringas, yeah. <clears throat> um, Finka says, I chop and drop Swiss chard. I, ironically, it's probably better to chop and drop Swiss chard than it is to eat it because chard is really high in oxalic acid. And the crystals tend to build up in your body and they cause joint pain and other stuff. I don't like eating spinach or Swiss chard for that reason. Uh, so, so all those people are making spinach smoothies thinking that they're healthy. Uh, you'd probably be better off making a bacon smoothie. Seriously. I mean, I'm literally not kidding. Um, the, the Man, they'll beat you, you know. The oxalic acid is nothing. It's, it's rough. Eva says, I'm all about the composting. I'm just getting into it, but was wondering why people tend to have issues with it, like bugs or mildew or whatever. Thanks. The bugs and the mildew, that's part of the composting process. 
The bugs are your primary decomposers. They're the ones that are eating it and breaking the material down, manuring the pile. They're good. They're good guys. The bugs are doing good work. They're turning the pile for you, keeping it warm, getting it going. Um, but the the mildew and the mold, no problem. That's fungi breaking down the pile. Both of those things are not problems. If there is a bad odor or if there are too many flies on the pile or whatever else, I highly recommend just keeping some dry leaves or grass clippings in an area near your pile that you can keep keep dry brown material or even shredded paper and you just throw a little layer over the top of the pile now and again if it starts to smell bad or it seems like it's too soppy or the bugs are too much or whatever just throw that over but let the bugs work let the fungi work that's the way it goes nature is is breaking stuff down into black gold for you you don't have to worry about it it's it's not composting is really really simple i mean if you read compost everything the good guide to extreme composting you'll see i i strip composting down to its very bare essentials it's a philosophy of composting that will allow you to compost basically everything organic i am i'm so happy with that book and i'm really glad i wrote it because i was i was very irritated with how complicated composting was and how complicated it was presented as and so for years i tested different varieties of composting for my garden even before i was a garden writer i was playing around with all kinds of composting methods and i realized there's no rocket science to this you're just doing what nature already wants to do the trick is, is just to control it in ways that you can use it in your garden and 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 make compost for way less work so compost everything uh and and let the bugs work let the mold work whatever you i mean you could you could literally just take a big pile of biomass stuff like you've got leaves You've got grass clippings, uh, you've got a dead animal, whatever, you just stack it up in one corner and you could throw a tarp over it if you want to or wet it really down and throw a tarp over it if you're in a really dry area or just leave it out in the rain, doesn't matter. All you have to do is throw stuff in a corner and it'll rot. I mean, even if you stack logs up, they'll rot eventually and they'll make really good compost. Chile Expat Family says hello from Chile, South America. Hello, Chile. Always wanted to go there. Um, <clears throat> what is mimosa good for? As in Albizia julibrisson, the mimosa tree, it's a good nitrogen fixer. It's a very good chop and drop tree. It's a, um, it's a, a mild invasive tree. It's all over the place. It's on the invasive lists uh, all through the south. But it is a, it's a very good chop and drop tree. I would, I would cut them and let them grow back again and again and again. Let them grow tall, cut them down. Let them grow tall, cut them down and use the leaves and the sticks to feed my other plants. You just chop them around and throw them on there. No, the bugs in the mildew will not kill the plants in theory. It doesn't, it, it's not a problem. It's see, see they're also, the, the more complicated the system is, the, the better the plants tend to do inside of it. And, and that's a natural system. I'm not talking like aquaponics. I'm talking about if you have a whole bunch of bugs and you have a whole bunch of different kind of fungi, the system tends to fall into balance and you get less disease issues. Is there rain coming? Would you check? It's feeling scary. Yeah, it looks like it's raining over there. Sorry, I'm on top of the mountain, so. No, I wouldn't worry about it. Just, just throw just just cover it over and let it rot stuff will balance out over time 
Jason says, this is like when I thin out the amaranth, tons of phosphorus in those greens, but lots of oxalic acid too, mm, calcium for the soil. Yeah, uh, amaranth is another one I don't grow that much of anymore. I used to eat it pretty regularly, but I've dropped off because I don't want the oxalic acid. Is lamb's quarters high in oxalic acid? I eat tons of it. I'm not sure. Cooking does dispose of uh, some of it, so definitely don't eat it raw. Cooking is better, but some of it doesn't get rid of it doesn't get rid of all of it. Brett is making BLTs in a bit using beef steaks from the garden. Good work. Good work. My YouTube channel says I am using tobacco compost and sweet potato compost. Good work. Uh, Gomez says, so what greens have the lowest oxalates but grow in Washington? Good question. Uh, most of your brassicas have pretty low oxalates. Uh, kale is not very high in oxalates. Um, there are, let me think, some of your, I've, I've got so many tropical greens in my head that I know are, are, are pretty good. Like like members of Malvasia usually aren't that bad. Um, the okra is a little bit high. But if you're, if you're eating, um, you know, your broccoli, kale, cauliflower, cabbages, those guys aren't, aren't that high in oxalates. Those are good. The lettuces are not high. Um, but the really high ones are spinach, spinach and amaranth and chard. Those, those guys I just don't want to eat anymore. I mean, you can bite into that stuff raw, and you know how it starts to make your throat feel a little scratchy? I'm, I'm very sensitive to it. I notice it when I eat it. I can also sense carbon dioxide. I can see it. I could see carbon dioxide. Oof. Everywhere. Rotten breadfruit is good to compost. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Simmons says, I just doused everything with Dave's fetid swamp water and put the sludge around all the fruit trees. The peach trees especially appreciate it. Good work. Terry says, I can't seem to get a hold of dollar weed, even with four layers of cardboard. What about roly-polies or pill bugs? A lot of them. I think they ate my stem and root on a seminal pumpkin. Generally, what's eating the stems and roots of, of seminal pumpkins uh, are, are vine borers. But... Pill bugs will eat what they what they want to eat. Sometimes they attack the gardens, and sometimes they don't. The dollar weed is is a weed of wet spaces. So if you have too much water, you get dollar weed. If it's a little drier, the dollar weed goes away. So you may have, um, you may just have a wet area. You may be able to just garden with the dollar weed. Might not be the worst thing in the world, but it's it's hard to get rid of because it it spreads underneath the ground. It's got those little running stolons. <laughs> Mars says a two dollar super chat says Will Rick's olive tree fruit in South Florida. <laughs> That's funny. Oh my gosh. Um Finka says I heard that Oxalis does fix nitrogen. Now I did not know that. I'll have to look that up. Uh it's not a it's not a leguminous plant, so that's that's interesting. And it's an indicator of nitrogen poor soil. Like bougainvillea is an indicator of infertile soil. Very interesting. I'll look that up. Thank you. Had a ton of rabbit poo and fish emulsion in there too. It smelled awesome. Well, Ev, you can tell them that they can cut that tree down. Hello, Jennifer. Beach bear. Hey, we got a bear here tonight. Any other bears here tonight? Any more bears? 
Hey, Beach Bear, what about composting weeds? Won't it spread their seeds? Yes. Uh, no matter how well you make a compost pile, and they talk about hot composting, get rid of weed seeds, it doesn't do it. So seedy weeds, I chop up and I throw on the ground around my fruit trees and perennials, and then I, I mulch over them if I feel like it, or I just chop the weeds that come up again. But generally, if it's in mulch, it tends to rot down. Where the weeds really show up is when you have bare ground, like you've tilled a new area and you've put down compost on it and the compost has weed seeds in it. All those weeds love to pop up over bare ground. But if you have an area like you're, you're just deep mulching, chop the weeds up and throw them around the base of your fruit trees and let them feed, the weeds are not as big a deal then. Unless you went and tilled around the base of the fruit tree and then it'll pop up. Anthony says, I planted two grapevines at the base of juniper trees at about 5,800 feet elevation. Figured I should use the juniper for something instead of cutting them down. Yeah, great idea. I used to use a sweet gum tree for a uh, yam trellis. Cut the top of it off every year so it would let the light through and use the mulch with the top that I cut off. Planted the yams and they would they would just grow up there. Lazarg says, I'm putting mare's tail and bindweed in my compost tea. How long before they will be rotted enough to not be a threat if I put it on the compost tea for garden? Loving your channel, by the way. Revelatory. Well, thank you. Um, revelatory is a good word. Uh, basically, you're going to be able to tell if they're rotten enough because they tend to get squishy and yellow and mushy. So if they get squishy and yellow and mushy and they just like, you know, crush in your hands, that's not going to grow again. Um, but it depends on how hot and fetid the tea is really sometimes in just if they're just sitting in water they may go longer than if you had a really nasty tea with a ton of biological activity happening inside of it in that case um, they're gonna rot a lot faster like I threw some pumpkin vines into some hot like sitting in the Sun tea that had a bunch of rotten fruit and some meat and stuff in it and those vines just like rotted away in a mush in a very short period of time Derek says, what should I do with a male mulberry? Some guy traded it to me off Craigslist saying they were good producers, planted it in a yard, and it took off, but it turned out to be a male. Okay, what you need to do is to graft female cyan wood onto it. Use it for a rootstock, but cut the tree. When it grows back, a, a few little stems, graft them uh, this next spring. You may try uh, side veneer grafting. Look at the uh, Git grafting video. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen it, Derek. The Git grafting video demonstration I did, the side veneer grafting may work. You may be able to wedge graft it. It's hard to do that sort of thing in the summer, and they don't really do as well in the fall, but spring when they're bursting out of dormancy, um, you can change the sex of a mulberry tree. So you use that male for a rootstock, and then you just graft, graft on top of it. You can also um, just graft on individual branches of it if you want to. If, if it has a nice structure with multiple branches, cut off the branches and graft into them. If you get any of those grafts to take, you can always just cut the rest of the branches off too. I mean, if, you, if you've got, you cut it at the bottom, right, and it makes like five or six shoots right now. So they're growing up and in fall, they go to sleep. You graft onto them in the spring. Um, whichever grafts take, just keep those and cut the other ones off and you've just changed the sex of the tree and you're going to get fruit and and it'll fruit fast too we're talking like it might even fruit the year that you graft it. it's insane let's see spanish needle high in oxalic acid i do not know on that <laughs> scott says my dang simashata finally gave me female blossoms on a pumpkin pit but no male blossoms open i'm sorry 
Kelly says we can get mill mud bagasse from the sugar mill. Good to go direct in the soil or in a compost heap first. I would not till it into the soil because it's high carbon. It will bind up the nitrogen, but it's a good mulch. But you should ask them if they spray anything on the sugarcane fields because I have heard in some places they use herbicides in the sugarcane and I'm not sure. <laughs> Comrade Gretchen needs better. Um, you can put seedy weeds in compost tea and kill the seeds that way, but it doesn't work with all seeds. Uh, somebody told me that they had put thistles in there and they watered the gardens with it a few weeks later and they got thistles showing up. So some of it lasts better than others. <clears throat> Have a good night, Alan. Hey, you got a bee trap. Good job, Jeff. Welcome. Uh, Biblis says, if oxalic is causing joint pain from crystal formation, does cutting out of diet fix problems? Yes, over time. Sometimes it gets worse, though, because your body gets used to having the oxalic acid in it. There's some very interesting stuff that, that happens with that. Your body gets used to having oxalic acid, and you cut it out of your diet quickly, and you start to develop more pain because your body is trying to purge the system. And sometimes people have even had crystals, like, coming out of their skin very weird because the, the oxalics have built up and then your body starts trying to push them out so cut the oxalics down slowly you know um, if you want to get rid of all the oxalics you could go like a total carnivore diet for a couple of months and purge a lot of it but sometimes people can get feeling lousy as the body gets rid of oxalic acid quite interesting um, I used to have regular joint pain before I quit eating wheat. Now I eat a little bit of wheat now and again, but I can feel that if I eat it for a couple of days, it starts to mess my digestion up and I start to get joint pain again. If I don't want joint pain, I don't eat meat, uh, I don't eat wheat. And the same thing with white potatoes. White potatoes and wheat are two of the most inflammatory things for your joints. So if you skip both of those and stop it with the spinach smoothies and stop it, stop eating chard, don't eat so many raw salads you will actually uh, lower inflammation levels, interestingly enough. Uh, Camille says, can you use whey from cheese and yogurt making in your fetid swamp butter? Yes, I have done that, actually. It works. There's, there's good stuff in there. <laughs> That's funny, Arch. <clears throat> can you still graft after they've bloomed in late spring, or is it too late? Uh, generally, they don't take as well. You could still try it. You have nothing to lose. Do it. So... Oh, you're not leaving, Alan. I said goodbye, and you're not leaving. That's weird. Seems like all the good stuff has some oxalates in it. The body can process some, just don't overdo it. Yeah, I think the only thing that doesn't have oxalates in it is steak, so you just need to live on steak. Anyhow, guys, have a great night. Thank you for um, those of you who sent some super chats. Thank you very much to the members and to the bears that showed up tonight. And we have had a good... A good time talking survival garden, and I and I want to thank DB for the giant email. Um, if 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 you generally, I don't answer emails with like ten questions in them, but in this case, I, I hope it was useful. If you're interested in grow or die, there is a link below this video. So um, thank you to for the um, the super chats that we got here. I want to thank everybody. It's really hard for some reason. Um, the way the way the studio is displayed on YouTube is really ridiculous and it's very hard for me to see everybody's super chats but I want to thank Scott and Tina and Justin and Carolyn and Rick and Mars and I think I think I think there's another one I think I'm missing 
Rick, Rick, will my olive tree? And yeah, you guys are so cool. Um, I hope it was some useful information on survival gardening. Thanks for all the questions and everything. Have a really good night, everybody. And I will catch up with you guys very soon, hopefully. And until then, may your thumbs always be green.